Over to the book of Micah. Micah, we're going to continue with our series on primary colors. Last week, <clears throat> we concentrated on a passage that highlighted David's inclusion of the ark of God into his public forum of government and worship and that the ark was brought into Jerusalem. And he was so excited about that, he talked about how important it was with respect to three foundational concepts that defined our best speech spiritually. And he talked about how we ought to approach God. We ought to bless the Lord. We ought to talk to him well. We ought to speak of him well. He talked about how we need to address our circumstances, call upon his name. That means to invoke his power and presence into your present realities. And thirdly, make known his deeds among the people. And that we need to make sure that we are we are telling our story of how God has helped us, strengthened us, provided for us, giving testimony on a regular basis of his goodness. And those three things help us know how to guide our speech best and how we communicate to him, how we address our circumstances, and how we address the world. That in the light of what primary colors are. And that there are three. There's blue, there's yellow, and there's red. And from those specific colors come all the other colors we see in our visual spectrum. So our proper speech, most proper speech, comes from these three areas. And we can mix them up however we want, make colors, just become artists with our verbiage. But we start with these and then allow God to inspire as we ad-lib. Today we're going to talk about primary deeds in, in relationship to primary colors. And the book of Micah breaks down all of the law, if you will, into three specific areas. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Again, the title of the message is Primary Deeds. Verse 8, Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Lord, help as we study. I've broken down these three things into three alliterative statements, which I always do. I do alliteration a lot, not for your benefit, but for mine. I have to memorize the sermon, so it helps me. Laudable conduct, loving kindness, and low living. Laudable conduct, loving kindness, and low living. Let me set this up for you. Micah was a prophet to both Judah and Israel. At this time, there were two nations that made up one people. It was the northern kingdom, which did not have much proper worship at all. It was a mess. The northern kingdom did ne never had a good king. Now, the best one they had was Jehu, and he was just considered good because he didn't do as bad as the rest of them. Um, and then the southern kingdom had a list of good kings, but even, even some of the good ones weren't as good as they should have been. And the bad ones were even sometimes worse than the ones in Israel. So Judah was the southern kingdom made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi and a smattering of Benjamin. And to the north were the other ten tribes. Um, during Micah's time of prophecy, which was right about the latter part of the 8th century B.C. down to the, the early part of the 7th century B.C., about 812 or 814, all the way down to 740-something. Um, uh, 
Micah had some contemporaries who were pretty powerful. In fact, if you consider Israel is really not much bigger than what we would call our, 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 our uh, Atlantic mid-coast, not very large. I mean, the nation is about 100 miles long and at the widest part, about 70 wide. So that's basically a, a fairly moderate state in the United States of America. Considering that, the amount of prophets that were concentrated during this time period is astounding. Micah's contemporaries were Isaiah, Amos, two guys that had a pretty good run. Both of them got books in the Bible. And so these three were the collaborative voice of God for the nation. Wow, what a time. What a time. And not to mention that all three of these guys functioned under some pretty good monarchies. So Uzziah, great king, really, really good king. Had the longest reign of any righteous king at 51 years. Jotham, his son, another good king, not as good as his dad, but good. Ahaz, so-so, yeah, but good, good, good. And Hezekiah was last, and he was of, of, of this era, and he was the best king in all of Judah. So these were the four kings in Judah. Now to go to the north, yeah, it really didn't matter much because these northern kings were just all messed up. They had no worship that was accurate. The kings never really appreciated the prophets of God. I mean, they, they treated Elijah bad, who came right about this time period. They treated uh, Elijah bad, who came after Elisha. Excuse me, treated Elisha bad, who came after Elisha. So the northern kingdom really didn't have anything good going on. But, but Micah prophesied to both, primarily, though, to the southern kingdom. And the, the, the things that the prophets had in common is that they were hearing the same kinds of things. So if you look at the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, you'll see Isaiah saying this. Stop bringing me your sacrifices. I don't want another bull. I don't want another goat. Now, sacrifices were prescribed by God to be the substitution for us, meaning that, that version of innocent blood was to substitute for ours because we were guilty. God required that sin means death. But God didn't want us to die, and so he said, let's go ahead and use the animals instead of human beings. So animal sacrifice was a part of the daily routine, the normal process of worship. But Isaiah is saying, by God, don't bring me that anymore. Now, why in the world would God say, don't bring me something he's already prescribed, except that they weren't doing it properly? What they were doing is using their sacrifice as a substitute for their obedience. Coming to church on Sunday, singing as they walked in but only excited because they knew they were going to get forgiven for what they did last night. Saturday night was wild. You can still smell the alcohol on them. Life just went, went completely different. When the alarm clock woke, woke them up this morning, they were, okay, I got to get with God. But all week long, they haven't been doing anything that looks anything like what a Christian ought to do. But they're hoping that Sunday morning absolves them from everything they did. And, and it, it, we're not talking about just one week of lapse. We're talking about a lifestyle of lapse. One week, you got mercy galore. Lifestyle living, mercy not so much. God says, I'm not going to let you live like this. Because number one, you are a horrible witness to everybody else with whom you come in contact. Number two, it is horrible for you to live in a, a duplicitous life whereby everything you do 
for six days, says nothing about me, and thinking that somehow you can make it all right by lifting your hands and singing and listening to a good sermon and saying amen every once in a while? Have you lost your mind? I'm not going to let that happen. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In the highest order. Now, this is what Isaiah says in chapter 1. Micah says the same thing in chapter 6. Before we get to here, he says, stop bringing me your animals. I don't want your sacrifice anymore. Why? Because the people were living in hypocrisy. They were driving hard their workers and not paying them. They were closing their eyes to the poor as they walked by. They were treating their spouses poorly. Everything was messed up. But they thought, boy, if I just bring sacrifice, it's all going to be right. God says, stop it. And this is where we get verse 8. Oh, man, what does God require? If he's not interested in your sacrifices, the way you're bringing them, then what does he require? Three things. That you do justly. That you love mercy. And you walk humbly with your God. You do these three, you'll be all right. When we talk about what it means to do, to do justice or do justly, laudable conduct, making great decisions with your life, obeying him on the regular, not just when things are going horrible. There's a passage in Psalm 119, verse 67, that says this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Boy, it's amazing what affliction does, isn't it? When people start feeling bad, they run to God. When it's real bad, even for the atheists, they start running to God. They don't even know exactly where he is or who he is, but they start crying out. When, when affliction comes, it stops you from going the direction in which you were going. And unfortunately, that is the thing that most often drives us to God. The fact that we are afflicted and can't find relief except in his presence. And I'm grateful that we are driven like cattle that need to be herded in into his presence. But that ought not be the only motivation. Unless you want affliction to be a normal part of your life. You want God to love you like that? See, he loves you enough to figure out how to get you in his presence any way he can. So if you won't come when times are good, he'll get you to come. He will find a way to get you to come. So if you like ease and you don't get much of it, doesn't happen much in this life. We have to swim upstream all the time. If you like ease as much as we can get it, worship well, live right, obey him, and that way he won't have to use affliction as a primary motivation to get you to worship well and obey him. Laudable conduct. Laudable conduct. Being the person that lives right. And the beauty of this, this passage here, he says, do justice or make good judgments. The word in the Hebrew is shafat, which, which means to, to also make good decisions. Good decision making. We are, in large part, a composite of all of our decisions. Fortunately, we are not a composite of all of our decisions, or else we'd be dead. The reason we are a composite of all of our decisions is because they're a large part of our decisions that the Lord has just allowed his mercy to cover. 
Anybody know what I'm talking about? That dumb thing you did that you didn't pay the penalty for. Nobody found out you didn't go to jail. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Lord's mercy. He could have revealed it if he wanted to. But you are sitting here today a free man. (laughs) The Lord's mercy has, has attended your way faithfully. And every once in a while, he allows his judgment to pierce through the veil of his mercy to get your attention, to teach you a lesson not to do what you're doing. But his standard operating procedure is to bleed, is to pour, is to rain down his mercy on your life. And I mean bleed because it costs. It costs the son of God his life to get you forgiven. This is why we need to do everything we possibly can in view of the sacrifice that Christ gave for us, everything we possibly can to make good decisions, to love him like that. When somebody asks another person whether they love God, generally speaking, the person who is hearing interprets their question as being how are their affections turned? Where do they lean? Do you love God? Do you have an emotional attachment to him? Is that how, is, is there something of a tenderness in your soul whenever you hear the name of Jesus? Does, does your voice just kind of lighten? And your, 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 your soul gets softened when you hear Jesus. Ah, Jesus. I don't know if God interprets that as love. I don't know. I know we like to think of it as love, but I just don't know. I'm going to let him define how he wants to be loved rather than me thinking I can conjure up the way I like to love him. You remember my my story of the vacuum cleaner? (laughs) I'm so sad it's true. My second Valentine's Day, I went to the store to buy my wife a Valentine's Day gift. And she said, we've been talking a long time. We didn't have much money. She needed a vacuum cleaner. So I went to Sears and bought her a vacuum cleaner for Valentine's Day. (laughs) This is sad because it's so true. I was such an idiot. And I didn't even get the clue when I paid for it at the checkout aisle. The woman said, oh, vacuum cleaner. Is this for the wife? Yeah, I'm getting it for her for Valentine's Day. The woman looked at me and said, Well, I hope she likes it. (laughs) And you know what I said? Me too. I just, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I was such an idiot. Brought it home to Happy Valentine's Day. Got her a card too. I got the card, you know. And she was so sweet. She said, thank you so much, dear. But I could hear in the voice that I'd I'd done something wrong. I said, I... This, I didn't do this right, did I? Oh, I'm fine, dear. I, I, did, I messed up, didn't I? I messed up. I messed, I'm going to make this up to you. When we love God, we bring him vacuum cleaners too often. We bring him stuff that we think he needs when he's not asking for that at all. All the time we bring him vacuum cleaners. When he specifically has stated how he wants to be loved. It's real clear. There's no ambiguity at all. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will do what I say. You will obey my commands. 
you will do what I say. So rather than defining love as that which kind of tickles your affections and leans them toward God, let's define how we love him by how he wants to be loved. If you love me, obey me. Make great decisions with your life regularly. Objective and subjective. Objective, obeying what you know in print. Don't sleep around if you're single. And don't sleep around if you're married. Intimacy is that which is relegated for the person to whom you say I do and that for the rest of your life and only that person. That's the way it's supposed to be. I don't care what you've heard otherwise. That's the way intimacy is. Stop it if you're doing it. And ladies, you're more valuable than that. Don't give it to a man unless he pays for it with his life. The way he pays for it is as he says, I do. Are you listening to me? There ain't a man handsome enough or has a nice enough job. Don't do it. It's always, there's always a cost for that. Always. Please don't think in your mind that somehow the pastor just cheapened it by putting a price tag on it. It's just your life that it costs. Among the number of reasons why... Ladies who worked at night do what they do and, and, and it being wrong is that they charge too little. To do that act should cost a man's life. It always costs. And right now, some of y'all are giving away for free. Amen. You're more valuable than that. Make a man pay. Along with a, a ring. Why is it so quiet? I get accused. This this is a constant slam, if you will, against my ministry. Men come and say, that pastor's too hard on men. Yep. Yep. Somebody ought to call you up to a different level and help you understand what it means to be a leader in your own household and in your community what integrity looks like. And I'm not talking about just a works-oriented mentality. I'm talking about a man who is understanding what it means to surrender his, his soul, his will, his mind, his strength to God so that God can empower him for the most proper conduct yeah. so that we can be the kind of men that our community needs, giving all of our strength for the benefit of humanity and laying down our lives. And while we do it, we say it so that there is no distinction between what we say and what we do. Is it too much to ask for simple integrity? I think not. Good decision making. That's just the stuff that's written down in the Bible. Then there's subjective stuff. In 1992-93, our church was probably about 53 to 70 people. And many of those people were trying to figure out every week whether they were going to be a part of our church. I was the senior pastor. I had become senior pastor in 1991, and I had helped start this church in 1982. So I'd been with it throughout its whole life. And we had grown to about 180 people from 82 to 89. Never were we a large church. We had a bunch of college kids. We didn't have any money. We were meeting from hotel to basements of churches to community centers. We had no home. We were, we were a roaming version of Israel 
in a small context that had no promise land to speak of. We were hoping that God would give us one. And then our ministry blew apart. Senior pastor left, and we went from 180 down to 50, down to 75 in May of 1980, May of 1991 when I became senior pastor. And um, <clears throat> those 75 people, I said, give me three months to see whether you want me as your senior pastor, because a senior pastor previously, their senior pastor had stepped out and given me the church. And, and in three months, I had, I had successfully grown the church from 75 to 53. And those 53 were all looking at one another every week thinking, you, you going to be here next week? Are you going to be here next week? It was that bad every Sunday. I'm not kidding. It was that bad. And I wasn't a very good communicator. I didn't know how to preach. I'd done campus ministry, university campus ministry, but I'd never, I'd never built a church. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to do it. It's different than just talking. It's, it's building. So I wasn't very good. But some people hung in here with me. And uh, after a couple of years, we still had the same 53. No, we still had 53, not the same 53. <laughs> and a ministry came to me, and um, they had a, a powerful um, impact on the world with family ministry. They had radio, books, men had a speaking circuit. It was massive. It was the largest family ministry in America, maybe the world. But they weren't reaching much of the African-American community. And um, in fact, most African-American churches had no idea who this guy was. And he was huge in most of the white churches, huge. They came to me and said, we want to reach the African-American community. Would you please be the black face of this ministry? We'll get you a radio program, we'll get you books, the whole works. And I respected this ministry. It was fabulous. And I said, wow, how'd you hear about me? And went through all that, and you think you're perfect. I said, oh, gosh. That's good. So I went home, prayed, and I said, okay, God, this looks like how I can help change the world. This is fabulous. And I'd like triple my salary. Now, that might seem like great, but I wasn't making much. So tripling was, was big to me, but to nobody else did it look impressive. I was thinking, wow, and I had two kids, and I was caring for my ailing father who was dying. And so I needed resources really, really bad. And I went to God, and, and um, yeah, he didn't say much. He didn't say anything. And then finally, the, the man came back who was interviewing me and said, listen, one thing, we want you, but you got to move to Colorado Springs. Why? Are there black folks in Colorado Springs? <laughs> well, wait, like how many black folks are in Colorado Springs? Now, there might be a lot now, but in 1992, there weren't many. He said, oh, I don't know, maybe 3 4 5%. I said, how much credibility do you think I'm going to have basing a ministry to the African-American family community if I'm living in a predominantly white community? How? how I, I'm in D.C. We, even though my church isn't large, we're reaching out. And trying to help people in D.C., we've got learning centers down there that we, and we do family ministry for families that are broken. And I have credibility here. It, it gives me a, a foundation. And when you got to move to, to Colorado Springs, I went to God and I, I said, "Lord, what do you think?" He said, "Don't take it." I said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> 
Uh-oh, he didn't answer a second time. I went back to him. I said, listen, I got a church here. I said, it's not large, but God's called me to these people, and he's called me to this community. I can't go. I can't go. And I know it doesn't look wise. I got 53 people and a budget of maybe $40,000 a year. <laughs> I don't know how in the world I'm going to survive. Your offer looks much better than what I got. But I'm staying with what I got. He said, okay, thank you very much. I'm so happy I stayed. They've since had at least four versions of me, and you don't know who they are. You you have no idea who they are. And three of them have called me and said, why didn't you take this job? I said, for the exact reason that you should not have taken it. Because you got to move there and give up everything you knew in terms of credibility. And then I went through my whole story. There are subjective things that you need to know about that God needs to inspire you with lest you take what seems to be a great opportunity and it turn out bad. There are so many people who go for the best job and they miss out on all the spiritual things that they should have included in the recipe of making their decision. Lord, what are you saying? Lord, is there a people there to whom I can commit? Lord, what am I going to do about the ministry that I'm going to give up here? What about my family? What about the relationships my kids have built? Lord, what is the entire landscape of my spiritual development? How does that fit in with what I'm about to consider? But instead, all they look at are the dollar signs. And as a result, they jump at that and they miss out on all the rest. And they may get the dollars, but they miss out definitely on the other. And everything about what Jesus said applies to all believers, not just pastors. When you are concerned about resources and how God is going to provide, this is what you do first. You seek first the kingdom, and then he will provide all the other stuff to you. You do not degenerate down to seeking first the stuff and missing out on the kingdom. Now, the beauty is this. If you seek first the kingdom and his principles and his right deeds... Remember, Jesus got all he got from everything he read as well. Yes, he had revelation from heaven, a download that was unparalleled, but he also read his Old Testament. Do justly. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Do the right thing. Make good decisions. And if you do that, you will get the kingdom and you get all the stuff. I will add all this to you. Everything you need. If you seek first the stuff, you may get it, you may not, but you definitely won't get kingdom. Any wise person, any person that's thinking rationally says, you know, I'll get the kingdom and I get the stuff, so I, that's the best decision to make. Think kingdom. If, even if it means you sacrifice something now and it doesn't look like a good decision to anybody else. Everybody else is saying, take it, run with it. But you're not feeling in the spirit subjectively. That's the best thing for you to do. And so you wait. And you let somebody else take the job. And it might take a good 15, 20 years for you to realize you made the best decision. But then all of a sudden, you get a building that's paid for. And you get 3,000 people who show up every week that call themselves Grace Covenant. Are you listening to me? You get to build something distinct that doesn't exist any place else in our community with respect to multiculturalism at this level of concentration. You get to do something unique 
change, hopefully, an entire metropolitan area so that it will someday bow its knee. It might take a while, but the wait is worth it. And even if you don't get what you want in the end, you've obeyed your God. You've made a good decision, and that's worth it. You're quiet today. <laughs> Secondly, loving kindness. Oh, how important it is for us to love mercy. Do justly, laudable conduct. Secondly, love mercy. Listen, this is a primary color. Love mercy. Don't just put it in the lead, though you need to do that, but love it. And why is it attached right here in second to doing justice or making good decisions? Because those who do right regularly can almost begin to let their flesh bleed into their obedience to such a degree that now they look at everybody else who can't do what they do as well as they do it and now look upon them with some degree of, of de decline, thinking, hey, I pulled myself up in my bootstraps by obeying. Why don't you do the same? What's wrong with you? And now self-righteousness gets in the mix and you become one of those folks that, that they talk about holier than thou. Nobody wants to talk to you. Even though you might be right, you don't say right. You don't treat other people right. You have no mercy in your communication. Love mercy. Love it. And if there is anybody who would have the right to judge folk, it would be God. And yet all of us are still breathing. We have not been given the consequences of our misdeeds because of his great mercy. He's amazing. Psalm 136, what a passage. The whole thing's about 25 verses. And it, it, it's real easy. He gives 25 different declarations or so. And then after every short declaration, he says, for the, lo for, for, the Lord, for the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. For the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. For the loving kindness. God blessed Israel and gave them manner in the wilderness. For the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. The Lord is good and, and, and just in all his ways, for the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. 36, I, it's, I don't know how many times, but a bunch of times, every time, trying to get the message across that God's mercy and his tenderness and his goodness and kindness directs and accompanies our path, even when we go off script. Even when we go left, when we should have gone right, his mercy continues to follow us. It is... I'm not able to plummet. I don't know how deep it goes. You drop a rock into a well of God's mercy and you never hear it hit bottom. You try to figure out the boundaries and it's wider than your hands can stretch. His mercy is amazing. Now, he has boundaries. I just don't know where they are. He is so kind and he is so loving and he is so patient. He's amazing. And our response to that loving kindness ought to be more obedience because we never want to figure out where his mercy ends. We don't want to take for granted. We don't want to take advantage of it. We want to live in such a way that we are not always needing to say, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. Why not begin to tap into the grace which empowers us to obey so we don't have to ask for forgiveness for stuff that we would have done if we had not had his grace? Are you listening to me? 
But even when we do our best, we still mess up. Therefore, his mercy is there. But it should not be that we are intentionally going the wrong way in pursuit of something wrong and hoping that his mercy covers us in the pursuit. No, no, no. But his mercy is amazing. And we need to love it like he has it. Like he distributes it. That's how we need to posture our souls. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Matthew 5, 7. For they shall receive mercy. Mercy needs to be a part of your makeup. You don't need to judge people according to your actions. You have no idea the stuff through which they came. You don't know how they were raised. You don't know who hurt them. And you cannot begin to use your life as the template to judge whether anybody else is doing the best they can. You can't judge heart. You can't. You can't judge motive. You can judge action. But you can't judge the other. And when you see somebody who is performing poorly, their actions don't live up to their words, it's important for us to, to, to talk about that. I mean, I realize that the world's favorite scripture is judge not lest you be judged. They all know that. <laughs> they all know that. But they forget that 14 verses later, Jesus says... Now, you'll be able to tell real Christians, real disciples, people who follow me, by the fruit of their life. That's how you can judge them. Now, they forget that part. So, wait, 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 wait. Jesus said one time, judge not. But then he said, judge. Well, what's he saying when he says, judge not? He's saying, don't judge improperly, meaning don't be hypocritical. If you see the speck in your brother's eye, make sure they're in the log in your own. You can't judge hypocritically. You may not like what somebody else is doing, but are you doing it? And you may have struggled with it and overcome, but you realize that it's only God's mercy that allows you to obey to the level at which you come. Have you then applied that same mercy to somebody else combined with truth? Or are you so judgmental, forgetting of the kindness and grace that led you to repentance? You can't judge wrongly, but we ought to judge every day. Judgment is a part of our lives. We have to know what's right and wrong. We have to know good from bad. We have to know best from good, average from good. We have to know all these things. But always incorporating mercy. 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 Lastly, low living. I know all of us want to get to our ultimate place either in God or occupation. You all are out there working it every, every day, trying to figure out how you can be faithful to your employer and, and get up the corporate ladder just a couple of more rungs and trying to be a good employee and maybe show up a little bit early and staying a little bit late to prove that you are committed to the organization and to its principles and values and vision and you're doing it and, and all of a sudden the supervisor brings you in and you think this is the moment. I'm going to be recognized. He brings you in to tell you he's promoting the person who is under you to be your supervisor. Fifty percent of your heads went like this. You didn't say anything, but you just, you, you don't even know you did it. You just went, you know that ain't right. That's just not right. He's inviting you in the office just to let you know because he didn't want you to be surprised. And you're thinking, how in the that can't, you got to be, no. Now, you're sitting there thinking, 
I've been faithful. I'm going to church. I am serving my God. I'm tithing. I gave to the building program. I even gave to some missionaries who went down to Mexico. I have, I'm in a small group. I'm submitting my life. God, what's this? What's the, how can this happen to your servant? All those things are running through your brain. And you're looking at the supervisor who's telling you this news, which is untoward. And you're thinking, have you lost your mind? But your face is saying, Now, what do you do? Do you quit, go someplace else? It's your prerogative. And if you choose to do that, don't neglect this part. That the stuff that's making you go on the inside just burn and want to boil over and tell that supervisor a thing or two. That pride, not being able to recognize that God is the only one who promotes so that when you get mad at that supervisor, you get mad at God. See, if you really trust him like that, he's the only one who promotes. Psalm 70-something says, promotion does not come from the east or the west, but from the Lord. Now, is your God so small that you don't think he's thought about what your need is in promotion? Is he that small? Or have you given him all your life, your occupational life, your relational life, your financial life, your educational life? If you've given him all your life, then he's, he's involved with your promotion or whether you don't get one. But the issue is this. You interpret that somehow he's not for you because he didn't promote you through your supervisor. In reality, he's trying to give you more than what you need in terms of a promotion. See, he's got your best interest in mind all the time. He wants you to arrive at your destination. He just wants you to arrive at your destination with more than you think you, you actually need to get there. So the stuff that is coming out of you needs to get out of you. But the only way you know it's there is if you didn't get promoted. The bad attitude, the ungratefulness, the pride, I'm better than she is. I'm better than him. I'm more experienced. I'm more gifted. I can communicate. What do they see in them that they don't see in me? How is this? All that stuff needs to come out because it ought to sound something like this. Wow, Lord, if you're promoting them, what do you have for me? Woo! What do you have for me? God, you, see, your God is big enough that when somebody gets theirs, they never get yours. If your God's small, then when they got theirs, they took yours. There's only so much pie to go around. Therefore, if somebody gets that piece, that was your piece. And now I don't have any pie. I like pie. I like pie. <laughs> Where am I going to get my pie? They took my pie. <laughs> if your God's big, Lord, you keep making pies. You keep making pies. I thank you for making my pie for me. I don't just have a slice. I got a whole pie. It's coming to me. I rejoice in somebody else's success. And I just wait for mine. That kind of character makes you a stellar manager when you come into yours. Now you've got something on the inside that others don't, and you've got more resources to better manage all the stuff he wants to give you in terms of, of, of responsibility, in terms of resources, 
overseeing people, you have something on the inside of you that nobody else might have because you've been through some stuff and allowed God to get some stuff out of you and deposit some character in you so that when you arrive at your spot, it's a different version of you. A more character, a more patient, a more loving, a more kind, a more perspective-oriented version of you. Not just this one little person that thinks like this only. When am I going to get mine? When am I going to get mine? And you say to yourself, well, i got to provide for my family. That's it. You keep seeking the kingdom. God will make sure all the other stuff is given to you, Matthew 6. So when we talk about low living... <laughs> When you get on the elevator trying to figure out how to occupationally rise, push B. You know what B is, right? That's a basement. That's a basement. Push B because the only way up in God is down. I'm messing y'all up. You aren't amening me much. You don't like this sermon at all. Push B. And I promise you this, you won't have any competition for folks that want to go where you're going Amen. to serve the rest of the company, to help other people, to support them rather than looking for people to support you. You push B and humble yourself. Amen. Live low. Humble yourself. Push B. Go to basement living. Yes. No competition there. <laughs> you can have the entire basement to yourself. But when it time, when, 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 listen, Peter says this, humble yourself, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Meaning, basement living is not forever. But it is the only way to get to the pit house. Everybody's trying to get to the pit house. The elevator is full. And they're all pressing P. They don't know that in God, the best way up is down. You humble yourself. You realize that he's God, you're not. I trust you, Lord, with my life. It doesn't mean that you, you just throw out ambition. I'm ambitious. I push for stuff. My staff has no idea how much I, I don't bring to them. I have to suppress so many great ideas simply because I know we can't do it as a people. But God gives me stuff Every week, that's huge. Yeah. And I just said, no, that's not for us. That's for me, but that ain't for us. So I let it go. And I realized I've got to tunnel my ideas and my thoughts and my energy into a few things so that we can be what we need to be rather than doing what I want to do. And the things that I want to do very well might be good, but they may not be best for all of us. And so I suppress ideas. And when I suppress those ideas, I realize, Lord, I'm humbling myself because this is not about me. It's about you, and it's about these people. I choose to let my leadership come under your authority because this is your church, not mine. And I submit my ideas to a group of men and say, please, talk to me about this. I know I'm in charge. I can do what I want to do, but I don't want to do what I want to do. I want to do what's best for this people. So I humble myself under the mighty hand of God, which is best reflected usually in the authority that he has on the planet. It's one thing to say, I'm under the authority of God, but I don't care nothing about what y'all say. That, that doesn't make any sense. If anybody could do what he wanted to do and do it without anybody's authority on the planet, it would have been Jesus. And what did he do first before he began his ministry? Come to the River Jordan where John the Baptist was and say, baptize me. John realized who he was. 
He said, whoo, I didn't know what you were when you were growing, when we were growing up together. When we were, we were playing, you know, Israelites and Egyptians, and I always had to be the Egyptian. I get it. I get it now. But you are amazing to me. I know who you are now. Oh, it's a, listen, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus said, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. You're the prophet. I've got to come under your authority. Baptize me. I can't print my own business cards and call myself Messiah. You have to proclaim me. I come under your authority. If you don't say it, I can't do it. He had to trust a man, although he was God, to help him fulfill his own ministry. If anybody could have said, I want to do what I want to do, it would have been Jesus. But he came under the hand of God, which was represented by the authority of John the Baptist, in order to fulfill all righteousness. How much righteousness do you want to fulfill? Go ahead and do what you want to do, but it may not be all righteousness. There'll be more than not. Be good, better than bad, but will it be all? Humble yourself. Let's let people speak into your ideas. Let them talk into your relationships. He may be employed. He may be handsome. But if he doesn't love Jesus, he ain't right. You need somebody to speak into that. I know you don't like being alone. I get it. You want somebody to love you. I get it. But listen to me. People in the Bahamas go to Miami for vacation. I met somebody in the first service. She said, Pastor, you're right. We're going there next week. She said, I'm from the Bahamas. We're going there next week. I said, see, nobody's satisfied where they are. Nobody. The key is contentment. You who want to be married so bad, there's somebody sitting behind you right now, a woman who's saying, oh, God, I wish I was single. The grass is always greener someplace else. And we always think that we're going to find a better pasture over there. When the solution is not to move, stay where you are and be content. Use some fertilizer and water and make your grass green. Find God. Be happy with the will that is yours in his life, meaning his will for you that is presently being enacted in your life. Get content with that and say, Lord, I trust you. I come under your authority. Rather than trying to pull this off for myself, I choose to let you do it for me. It doesn't mean inactivity. It just means you're not in the lead. Let's pray.